Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. I'm Dr. Robert Lee Kilpatrick. I'm the chair of the Health and Medicine Member-Led Forum here at the Commonwealth Club of California, and I am absolutely delighted to welcome you back in person to the club. This is the first time I've been here in two years, and I live for hitting this gavel. (laughs) So today we have uh, a very important and famous person, Dr. Michael Merzenich who's a professor emeritus from the University of California, San Francisco. He's a co-founder of Posit Science, which is a company that will help all of us to improve our brain health. He's the chief scientific officer, and he's also the chief scientific officer of Stronger Brains. And today, Mike Merzenich is going to tell us how to live longer and better lives by improving our cognition. So without further ado, I'd like to hear from Professor Merzenich. Thank you, Robbie. Well, first of all, I want to say it's a great pleasure for me to be here and to talk in the, to be here in this place of distinction. Uh, it's a real honor. I also want to say at the outset that the subject I'm going to talk about has been, uh, involves science that's been contributed to directly by Thousands of individuals, scientists, clinicians, uh, volunteers in scientific studies, many, many people have been involved in this. And behind this this is a mountain of research because there's been an explosion in research in brain science and especially an explosion in that research that relates to uh, one of the greatest aspects of the brain and brain function, its inherent plasticity. The brain as an organ remodels itself by use and basically, it creates us. It creates us in our functional, in our functional status. It defines us, our well-being, and it defines our human capabilities. Brain plasticity is the basis of the brain's creation of the model of your world. Every one of the, you has a unique model because every one of your experiences have been individualized to you and to your personal histories. And it's also the basis of the the development of the control of your operations within that world. That control is very much a product of the era into which you just happen to have been born in the cultural environment and the local social environment in which you just happen to have arrived and have been living. You're a specialist as a modern human in a modern setting, in a modern family, in a modern place, in a certain particular peculiar location on planet Earth. And that's defined you through quadrillions of moments, quadrillions of moments of change in the wiring, in the functional operations of what is the most complicated, most complicated, in a sense, device existing on planet Earth. And you own one. And that device you own is is residing within your skull. Now, that device doesn't just differentiate you in the sense that it differentiates you as an operational creature in the world, capable of accomplishing certain things, and of course, blind to many, many other things. But it also creates yourself. It makes you. It does this by a massive schedule of self-reference. It identifies you over and over and over again, countless times, as the actor on the stage. It basically creates a wired association 
every time you sense, every time you act, every time you think, with a source of that sensation, of that action, of that thought, and that source is you. Yourself is engendered by your brain. It's created by your brain. It's the single most powerful product of your brain. And as it's generated by mega billions of moments of association, it does something really fantastic. It takes charge. It develops powers of agency. That massively created self-creation now is in control of the operations of you, of your brain, of your body, of yourself. And what a gift that is. What an amazing thing that is. What an incredible accomplishment of evolutionary biology that is. To imagine that that's happened within you, within your skull, within your lifetime. Now, it's important to understand that disability never goes away. It's the one uh, most important and everlasting characteristic of your brain. Until you die, you have the capability of improving your skills and abilities. Up to the end of life, <coughs> you have the cap capacity to acquire new ability, to acquire new skills. And you can only do that by brain revision. That's what acquisition of ability is all about. It's about specializing the machinery of the brain by changing it. And as you acquire that new skill or ability or improve it, you necessarily acquire it by changing the operational characteristics of the machinery inside your skull. Now, it's amazing to think that we arrive on the planet without that op operational specificity that relates to everything we're really good at, everything that's really important to us in achieving. We do not have that ability in any refined way, in any refined sense. All of that is achieved by the progression of our experiences in life. And this is a continuous asset that we all carry around within us. It's the great gift from the creator of the universe or from nature that is way too little exploited by us in, as a rule and by medicine, which is what this subject is all about. It's what this talk is all about. Why doesn't, why hasn't medicine taken this science more to heart? Why haven't you taken this science more to heart? Part of the problem, of course, lies with people like me I'm not translating it to you, not explaining it to you in a way that you should take it at heart. And that's what this lecture represents, a kind of feeble attempt to do. I'm going to try to sort, sail over this scientific landscape at about 10,000 feet and look down at this incredible mass of information that we now understand about our plastic brains and try to explain to you why we know this should be a guiding this is the guiding information for you in li living your life and a guiding a set of messages from medicine in how to reform itself so that it's more effective in helping us have stronger, better, healthier, and more effective lives. So what is changing exactly as the brain remodels itself throughout life to make the most of your life's experiences? Well, first of all, it's revising its detailed wiring. It's actually changing the way its machinery is organized in ways that enable its skills and abilities. It, initially, it's only defining or refining 
receiving information in a relatively crude way and analyzing or manipulating it with relative crudity. But it actually evolves the ability. It evolves the machinery itself on the basis of use. And it also wires itself to specialize its operations for everything that you refine in them by use. It's also changing many other physical and chemical aspects of its processing machinery. So things are growing, things are changing physically, things are changing functionally in all kinds of ways. Uh, it advances the machinery that controls change itself. It's also plastic. When you exercise it, you're a powerful operator in changing yourself and your capacity to evolve yourself and your powers. When it's, when it's down-regulated because of non-use or limited use, it's, you're dysfunctional, you're a slow learner. It's difficult for you to change things at a rapid rate. Commonly, you've probably heard that older people are slower to learn than younger people. The primary reason they're slower to learn is because the machinery that controls change is downregulated because of disuse. They're heavily relying on skills and abilities that they learned as a young person. They use those skills and abilities as they live their life, not realizing that the brain is demanding a life of continuous new learning of new skills and abilities, that they need to be accomplishing that, they need to be doing that to sustain high functionality and a continuous high capacity to drive their brain in improving or strengthening direction. Now, those changes are physical. Forget mental. In a sense, there's no such thing. It's all physical. This is a physical organ. It bleeds these are tissues. There's an issue of, its, of health of those tissues. Issue of the health of that organ. Isn't it amazing that when you go to the doctor, and the doctor asks, oh, oh, Mary, how are you doing? And Mary says, I guess I'm all right. Mary's just had her annual brain exam. It's as if medicine assumes that everything is healthy inside. A child shows up at school and everybody agrees they should have a physical. Where's the brainical? <laughs> Surely, an understanding of the organic health of the brain of the child who arrives at school is a consideration. Surely, it's something that should be taken seriously in trying to evaluate whether or not that child is really ready for school or will be successful or effective at school. Changes are physical, and it's a physical organ. We have to concern ourselves. Wow, this is amazing. Mr. Speaker thought he turned off his phone. <laughs> that is amazing. And boy, when your phone goes to your hearing aids, man, <laughs> that can really wake a person up. Okay. The product of all of those changes, of course, is the creation of a unique person. Now, major lessons that we learned from this science. The first, there's great variability in the status of organic brain health attributable to individual experiential life. Every one of us has been, had a different path in life. Some of them have been rich and full of interesting things and full of learning. And others are full of stress. Long periods in which the brain has been substantially shut down from change, in which the that stress or other or abuse can actually drive negative change. We can't anticipate that everyone ends up, everyone ends up with an 
identically organically healthy brain. And of course they do not. There's substantial variability in organic brain health that is attributed to our experiences. Organically healthy brains, or the proportionally unhealthy brains, uh, are proportionally higher risk for progressing to psychiatric or neurological illness. I think I left off the un, but you get my meaning. And of course that's true. A brain that is at risk is commonly a brain that is not physically and organically healthy. Most neurological and psychiatric disorders actually arise in neurologically at-risk individuals as a disastrous end stage of a long negative neurological progression. And with appropriate assessment, we can usually see them coming. We can see disaster on the horizon well in advance of their arrival. Of course. We can actually see the signs of a child advancing to schizophrenia that will likely emerge roughly in the epoch of their 20th, 20th to 25th birthday. Years in advance, a decade or more in advance. And what do we do about that in the current medical era? We may, we may be aware that the child bears risk, but we do nothing. Even though that child, every child bears a plastic, carries around a plastic brain, even though if the child has an identical twin with shared genetic weakness, there's only a 45% chance that identical twin will develop schizophrenia. How much would it take on an effort on our part to change the outcome of such an at-risk child? Why do we do nothing? Especially when we can know in advance that this and a myriad of other conditions are in an individual's future, or likely in it. And at least the substantial majority of neurological weaknesses or distortions that define specific chemical indications are actually reversible. We know this from this science. So when we define weaknesses that categorize a person um, moving rapidly towards a major depressive disorder, we can identify 15, 16, 17 different abnormalities in their brain, in their operational functionality that, are, that mark that path, that signify to us, that, that tell us that the person is on that progression. And we do nothing. We wait for the disease. We wait for the state of the, of the individual to advance so far that relatively drastic action is required after the train has run off the track. So we and others have extensively documented this reversible nature of brain plasticity, and we've done, initiated these studies nearly 20 years ago now. We began initially by comparing the brains of younger or older rats, and then later humans. And basically, we made a long list of things that we related to reliable functionality and range to their chemistry, to their physical structures, to their operational characteristics. And we looked at animals that are near the end of life, later humans near the end of life, and then we looked at animals in the prime of life. And we said, well, how many of these, uh, roughly 20 things initially, now the list is over 40 things, could we see are really different in a brain that's near the end of life, obviously struggling, from a brain that's in the prime of life, obviously as well off as it will ever be? And the answer is everything's different. 
And we can ask, well, how many of those things that are different actually advantage the older brain? And the answer is none of them. In every way, the younger brain is faster, more reliable. The brain is more physically intact. Insulation on the wiring of the brain is more intact, more developed. The brain is more strongly connected. The brain is faster in its operations, more accurate in its operations. In every way we look at the brain, in old versus young, the advantages to the young. And then we ask the third critical question. By engaging those older individuals in simple forms of brain health relevant training. And the question is, well, how many of these things are actually reversible? And how complicated it would be to reverse them? And the answer is, everything's reversible. In an animal model, almost every operational characteristic can drive the brain back to performance characteristics and to a physical status that approaches the physical status of that young, healthy animal, if not reach and exceed it. Everything is reversible. And in fact, everything reverses together with appropriate, specific forms of appropriate brain engagement and training. The animal works over a period of about a month, about an hour every day, and a month later, his brain looks physically, functionally, chemically like the brain of a young animal. So, for example, uh, what does change? Well, the brain's physical machinery changes. Its chemistry changes. Its defenses are strengthened. Its nutritional support is increased. Changes aren't just limited to the neurology involved. They also extend, for example, to the vascular bed, to the way the brain is protecting itself by, by shrinking the, 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 the junction between to keep the blood tissues and fluids out of the brain to strengthen its immune response in case there is some invasion of an of a, of a, of a infectious agent into the brain. We're improving its information processing machinery, improving its recording machinery, it's improving its executive control machinery. Everything is improving. So in these studies, and in their extension, more than 40 physical and functional differences have been distinguished in prime of life versus older age brains in humans and in animals. All of them are reversible. Now, when you're 40 for 40, you begin to understand that this is a pretty powerful thing. I still do not know of any fundamental aspect that's limited brain function or control that we cannot change or move in a positive direction. We have not found one. I'm sure there are individuals that have specific genetic weaknesses or specific genetic issues in which we'll come up against barriers that to us at least now are insurmountable. But to this point in the general population studies, we do not see that. Now, here are two simple examples. On the left, we're looking at a critical population of inhibitory neurons or nerve cells in the brain. And you see that in a young brain, they're numerous. Numerous cell, active cells in an old brain, there are few. These cells are actually controlling local coordination. And coordination is a critical aspect of basically a controlling highly salient information processing in brains. Activity has to be coordinated. So older brain does a very poor job of coordination. And one of the consequences of this is a weakened coordination is the brain slowly disconnects itself. And when you engage the brain in training, you rejuvenate the cell population. 
if you actually balance the training enough, you can match the status of this nerve cell population, its activities, and its actions with that seen in the young prime-of-life brain. Now, an example of a change that's occurring in a critical non-neuronal sense in the brain, one of many, is seen on the right. And here we're looking at the brain's ability to basically keep the tissues or fluids from blood out of the brain. On the left, we see that a young brain around the capillary, what arrow is pointing to a capillary in the brain, the brain is very effectively keeping a dye, relatively large molecule dye, out of the tissues of the brain. Imagine that that large or agent in blood could be a mole spore. Imagine it could be a virus. Imagine it could be something that could challenge the health of the brain. It would require the brain basically to wall it off with a protein called amyloid to create an amyloid body. Young brain is secure in this boundary. An old brain is leaky. And we see the old brain in the center, and we see the dye is diffusely leaking around every capillary into the tissues of the brain. Now, when chemicals from blood enter the tissues of the brain, they affect its excitability. And they actually directly degrade its operational characteristics. And actually, the brain has to make adjustments to that. It's as if I raised up the level of noise in the machinery of the brain, and because I raised up the level of the noise, I compromised the brain's ability to make accurate decisions at high speed. The brain has to slow down to get the answer right, of even the most elementary things. A common characteristic in older brains and older people is they slow down. And this is one of the reasons they slow down. Now, you can see after we train, the, in this case, the old animal, the boundary is completely resealed, just like in a younger brain. Now, we've actually conducted more than 200 uh, random assigned control trials using the training strategies that we've developed based upon these rejuvenating training strategies that have been applied initially in animals, later in humans, in all kinds of more elementary ways, in which we show that these program positive changes in brain health and physical brain status and in neurological performance abilities are pretty reliably recovered as a consequence of appropriate forms of training. You can go to the Posit Science website and just look at these research papers, read them one after another after another, if you like. And you see in clinical indication after clinical indication, in, in human population after human population, the brain is changed by engaging it in training like this. And it's changed in ways consistent with driving this myriad of positive changes in the brain by engaging it in appropriate forms of training. Uh, roughly 400 additional RCTs involving many thousands of individuals are in progress across the world. Now, it also turns out we've been talking a lot about, uh, you know, basically rejuvenating the whole brain, basically to drive it back into a youthful direction. But it turns out it's also equally easy because these processes are reversible to drive an old brain, a young brain, sorry, in an oldward direction. That's not something we generally want to do, but it's something we commonly do do unwittingly because brain plasticity is bidirectional. I could take any one of you, and if you're like an animal, because I haven't done this experiment in humans, I could destroy your functional use of your hand in two or three weeks of appropriate progressive training. 
turn your hand into basically a useless claw. I could take any one of you, and in a month or two, I could destroy your ability to understand what I'm saying. For now and forever, unless you retrained yourself in a corrective direction. Brain plasticity is bidirectional. And you're commonly engaged in activities, in enterprises, in everyday life that can move you backwards as compared with forward. In fact, there's, uh, it's important to understand that there's kind of plasticity switch in there in which in one direction, gene regulation is moving you backward basically to make adjustments so you can sustain control of yourself and your operations on a level that you can sustain life. But the other, more favorable direction is in the direction of growth in which you're advancing in your skills and abilities. You're improving in them. You're more and more powerful day by day, week by week, month by month. You want to be driving your brain in a growthward direction with relative consistency. To do that, you need to sustain your organic brain and health by exercising it. The brain needs to be appropriately, regularly exercised. Now, that doesn't mean you need to come to the brain gym and enroll in something like Brain HQ from Posit Science. It means that you need to think about what you're doing in your everyday life that is engaging your brain in ways that keep it healthy. And there are a myriad of things that you can do that will assure that you're still driving your drain, brain in a positive healthward direction. A life of continuous learning, a life that's continuously positively challenging, where you're acquiring new skills and abilities. We're improving the speed and accuracy in which you operate in whatever you're interested in doing, whether it be in the domain of music, the domain of physical movement or dance, whether it's in the domain of uh, uh, playing a, a fast rapid fire game like ping pong or tennis or pickleball or some other similar act. All of these things are good for your brain. All of these things drive your brain, sustain your brain in a healthward direction. So meanwhile, back in real life, vicissitudes befall us. And actually we're full, life is full of, life is a landmine a minefield full of landmines, endless number of vicissitudes, a thousand things can occur in a life from its history, from bad things that happen even to good people, as we know. All kinds of things happen that basically degrade brain performance and function. And when that happens, those neurological vicissitudes should be a call to action for you, and they should be a call to action for your medical doctor. Unfortunately, they rarely are. In our current medical environment, if, only if we're really struggling, mentally or neurologically, we call on our doctor for help. So you go to the doctor, and, and the doctor basically spends a brief time discussing with you what your problem is. They might refer to you to some additional testing to occur before they make a clinical decision about how the label they want to attach to you. They go to their reference manual, and they basically decide which of roughly 600 diagnoses, discrete diagnoses, they might apply to your neurological or psychiatric condition. And then commonly, that'll lead to, them to action. That action might be in the form of pharmaceutical medicine. It might be in the, the, the form of sending you to another specialist or to some procedure. Okay, this is what you can expect to happen. And already, a third of we Americans have been through this kind of process 
to receive and be treated for a neurological or psychiatric disorder. Now, if you live long enough, by the time you pass your 60th birthday, there's more than a 50-50 chance that you've been through this process. And if you live to see your 80th birthday, there's about a 70% chance you've been through this process. Okay, so it's highly likely if you haven't uh, been, had this specific kind of experience, you're about to. <laughs> now, what's wrong with this picture? Well, we could ask, first of all, why don't medical doctors routinely assay and manage their patients' brain health? Why are they paying no attention to it until disaster befalls you? Why is that? Wouldn't that be in the province of medicine? You could say, well, couldn't the doctor have far more information in hand about their patient's neurological health already subject analysis before you show up there? How hard is it to acquire such information? How hard is it for them to basically analyze or manipulate or bring use to such information? Why haven't medical practices shifted their focus from treating neurological disaster to, to, to growing their patient's neurological resilience, that is, to the prevention of neurological and psychiatric illness. Why don't they focus on prevention? Isn't prevention the best cure? Isn't trying to keep the train from running off the tracks a more intelligent approach than waiting until the disaster has occurred and then trying to put the damn thing back on the tracks? How long will it be before it advances beyond diagnostic labeling in favor of more complex and more complete individualized brain science-based assessment and treatment. What we do now is incredibly crude because almost no patient with a psychiatric or neurological disorder perfectly fits that diagnostic label. That's why so many people that go to the neurologist or psychiatrist end up taking so damn many drugs. Even the psychiatrist is confused as hell about how to manipulate the processes that he's seeing in front of them in their complex, individuated forms. Why don't inexpensive brain plasticity-based strategies that can address these patient-specific neurological weaknesses or distortions, why don't they represent the first and predominant line of attack for growing resilience and sustaining and recovering? We know they work. They know they have an effectiveness. Why aren't they more widely used and deployed? They're almost free. And why aren't neurological treatment strategies continuously informed by outcomes. Why do you have to go away from the doctor with your major depressive disorder and say, well, come back and see me in three months and we'll see how you're doing? Why is that a good idea? Why couldn't your, why couldn't your status be continuously monitored by the doctor? Why couldn't the, the doctor be continuously informed, or his clinic at least, about how you're doing on the medicine and whether or not you're still heading towards suicide. Why is that? Wouldn't the safety, the longevity, and the quality of life of at least the substantial order of we, uh, uh, majority of we Americans be positively impacted if medical practitioners paid greater and more continuous attention to the physical and functional status of our most important organ? Wouldn't we almost all benefit from that substantially in the quality of our lives? And how many billions of dollars would be saved if medicine could substantially reduce the numbers of individuals who actually progressed 
to neurologic or psychiatric disease or dysfunction to disaster. So it's time, in my view, to rethink what the hell we're doing and reconsider from the point of view of the brain how we think about brain medicine and how we think about managing our own life to the better advantage of our brain. Now, scientists' notion of what could and should be happening in this, this scientist in this medical clinic is embodied in a new medical health delivery model, which has been created by uh, a team that initially operated out of the Institute for Systems Biology in Seattle, led by an outfit called Phenome Health in what they call the Beyond the Genome Project. And one of the inspiring individuals that are involved in this, its real leader, is a wonderful world-class scientist named Lee Hood, who's a famous to all we scientists as the individual that, did, that contributed profoundly to the development of strategies for basically defining the gene, human genome in a practical way and to bringing it to bear. Basically, he drove into government. He drove government into developing an accelerated program that enabled the, our, us uh, scientists to very rapidly reconstruct the human genome. And the, the basic beyond the human genome model developed at ISB begins with your genomic record, of course. Everyone should have their genome reconstructed because it's valuable for your doctor to understand what your, in a sense, inherited weaknesses and strengths are. But that's just the starting point because you want to integrate that information with at least annual analysis of blood, biome, and other body fluid samples that quantify the expressions of several thousand proteins and inorganic analytes and extended documenting your gene regulation, not just your genes, but your gene regulation status. Now, this is an incredibly rich, you could say, data set that informs you about the general status of your health in body and brain. The second thing you want to do is at least an annual detailed computerized assessment battery designed to broadly evaluate your neurological functionality and organic brain health status. Now we're trying to help the Beyond the Genome Project create that battery that can be delivered in a simple digital form on a smartphone or on a pad. And it's important to, to extend what can be derived from genetic analysis and from, sample, from chemical analysis of blood because the brain is a protected environment. It keeps its complex chemistry secret because there's a barrier that separates brain tissues, which are sensitive to fluids from blood, from entering blood. So therefore, the signals that are provided about disease processes or changes that are negative in brains are masked or hidden behind this barrier, behind this wall. Only when the barrier is leaky do those chemicals flood into the brain. Of course, that can be easily detected in blood, and any such flooding would be easily, easily recognized in the chemical analysis in blood. The combination of the two is magical. By understanding what's happening in the brain, understanding what's happening in blood, we, we are richly informed about the health status of the brain and the body, but not just about its current status, but also we have enormous predictive value about where it might be heading 
in ways that can lead us into trouble in our body or in our brain. So this is the dream of the future in which medicine is guided by a complex new data set that provides all kinds of information about what's happening in your brain. That information would be enriched by ongoing recording from wearable sensor devices and from smartphones or submitted upon request on pads for more regularly and continuously documenting brain and body health, physical activity, and human performance abilities. So we've developed a series of apps on computers in which we know an individual at risk, let's say, for depressive illness can continually monitor how their, how their status is on the path to evaluating whether or not treatment strategies are or are not effective. Day by day, hour by hour, week by week, month by month, it's very clear what's happening in the medical clinic and for the patient in their neurological status as it relates to their health and well-being. And that's easily achieved in condition after condition after condition. And you can also use wearable sensors for the same purposes, obviously, like smartphones or Fitbits or other devices of that ilk. And AI analytics in the Beyond the Human Genome Project will be used, are being used, to link this extensive data set to each patient's historic medical and personal self-report records to help doctors interpret markers that have risen that may signal probable future illness. We want to know that ALS is in your future, years before it arrives. We want to know that Parkinson's disease might be in your future a decade before there's a sniff of it. We want to know that, that you are at risk unequivocally for a progression of schizophrenia or an anxiety disorder or a whatever disorder. We want to know that whether you're specifically susceptible to alcoholism or other addictions. We want to know that because we want to help you be stronger so that all of those and many other myriad of other conditions are less likely to occur to plague you in life, to degrade your life. The grand goal of the Beyond the Human Genome Project is to provide crucial assets to support a medical delivery transition from a focus on treatment of diagnosed illness to a focus on wellness and prevention. Returning medicine to where it should be, about keeping you healthy so that you never have to worry about a disaster that's going to degrade or potentially destroy your life prematurely. Now, I want to consider briefly to, in the end, two simple examples that could derive further benefit from using this more complete approach to address most neurological and psychiatric medical issues. And the example number one is functional neurological decline, progressing to dementia and aging. Okay? Aging, you could say, is the disease that affects all of us unless we do something about it. It's a universal disease. You should all be doing something about it. I hope after this lecture, if you're not, you start to. Now, it turns out that brain speed is one of the special markers that typically undergoes a dramatic decline with aging. You can see of these uh, five categories of, of uh, things that are changing across life, chronological ages across the, uh, 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 seen left to right from 20 to 90 years of age, you can see in the bottom of the graph. And uh, 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 right, you see the performance abilities that are expressed uh, as a function of age, and down is poorer, and you can see that from uh, roughly your 30th birthday, in, f in, f in, in five of these categories, four of these categories, uh, everything is declining. And one of the things I want to fo focus on decline, decline, declination on is brain speed. 
So processing or perceptual speed is, is, is dropping. That's one of those five bars. And it turns out that, that processing speed is to ch changing by a level of about a standard deviation. You're moving about a standard deviation across the human distribution every 30 years. In other words, if you go from your uh, 30th birthday to your 60th birthday, and you are in the middle of the distribution, you're at the 50th percentile in performance when you were, when you're 30, you're now at uh, roughly the 16th percentile when you're 60. That's not so good. Not so good on the job, not so good in life. If you should happen to live to 90 and you're the average typical human being, untrained and not paying too much attention, you live that long, you've moved another standard age. Now you're, you know, three, four, fifth percentile. That's really not very good. Okay, on the job or in life. Everything else goes with processing speed. It's correlated with it. Almost everything else you measure. And here the measurements include reasoning ability, spatial visualization, episodic memory. These are things important to you. Remembering things from your past, visualizing things that are, you're seeing out in front of you. It turns out that processing speed is a linchpin of these, of these abilities. All of these declining abilities can be rejuvenated at any age by training. Important to understand that. Now, it's easy to measure brain speed on a phone or a computer app. It takes two or three minutes. It could be easily done in a medical clinic. Anyone can easily do it any time they want. Speed with sustain, almost for free again, or for free. Speed with sustained accuracy is a very important indicator of the brain's performance abilities and its organic health status. Well, why is that? Because if brains are fast and accurate, they have to be advanced. Only a brain that's, in a sense, fully advanced, that's been driven through a long progression to be very fast and very accurate. It's a direct index of the organic health of the brain. If the brain can do two critical things, pay close attention on demand, sustain its attention over time, control its distractibility, and operate at high speed with high accuracy, it's generally pretty healthy. It's generally pretty safe. When we drive a brain to improve operational characteristics of brains, the primary thing we're doing is improving accuracy at speed and driving improvements of attention control and the, and the recovery and the reduction of distractibility. It turns out it's easy to speed up a brain by engaging in progressive computerized training. Now here we look at uh, a couple thousand people that have been trained of different ages, little match groups between ages of 20 and on the right there that we reach 80, 90 or so years of age. And in this case, down is better in this particular way the speed is illustrated. And what we're looking at is the before training uh, ability expressed by the red dots in the top. And now we train everybody in equal period of time. And what we see is that everybody improves roughly equally. Well, you say, well, the older people are not, not getting as far up the line as the younger people with training. That's true. But on the other hand, if I look at the average 65-year-old, uh, they actually are improving on a level in which they are equal to or superior to the average 20-year-old. That's exactly what we see in animals we talked about earlier. And I could show you graft after graft after graft of trained ability after ability after ability in older individuals, human subjects like this, that show this over and over again. You can drive the performance characteristics of the average older individual to match or exceed that of the untrained younger individual.
Now, it turns out that if I drive everybody in training to a limit to where they really slow down in inability, in improving ability with effort spent, the older individual does asymptote below the younger individual, substantially below them. But now they're superior to almost every untrained younger individual. So you can take an, a group of older individuals that are highly variable in their operational characteristics of the brain, and there's a wide variability. And then you can train them, and you bring them all up into a nor, nor, normal band, a narrow band that represents the formal characteristics of individuals in their 20s or 30s or 40s. So it turns out you can drive training in a skill or ability like this to only a limited extent and have a big impact. And this has been done in a number of outcomes trials. And here's, the, here's a little bit of information from one. Here in a trial, people were trained in a, in a skill at, a, at an ability that drove improvements of their processing speed and vision. And as a consequence, they, they speeded up the brain. They're about twice as fast in their brain operations, in visual operations after training as before. This was from a total time spent on the computer of 10 hours. 10 hours spent over a period of a week. That's a lot to do in a week. They did it in a week, one week in a life, two hours a day, five days a week, two weeks. And then we wait a year and see, well, how is their brain speed? Oh, it's still good. But let's train half of those subjects a little more. And let's see how much it takes to drive every one of their brain speeds, you could say, up to the level in which it was achieved. After It turns out it took about an hour. But in the study, people were actually trained between about two and four additional hours. The other half received no additional training. And then a year passed, and they looked again and said, well, most people are still far faster than they were at year three before training was initiated, two year, three years before. And then a year goes by, and people say are still sustaining their ability. So there's a long endurance. People are right, driving their brain, using their brain at higher speed. But yet, the scientists decided to train again. And that same group that had been trained two to four additional hours before were trained another two to four additional hours. Two years go by, and they look again. Brains are still fast. Then five years go by, and scientists look at this population and see brains are still substantially faster than before they were trained 10 years before. It turns out to be a pretty valuable thing to have done 10 years before, maybe. Okay, so people have received at this point a total of 10, half of them, to up to 18 hours of training overall. And all of that training was received in years one and uh, two and, uh, at the onset or in your end of year one, end of year three. So what was the consequence? Well, because of the, that training, these individuals have half as many traffic accidents. They have half as many traffic accidents that they, that they cause. So it has big practical impact on their life and their operations in life when they're using their, their, their visual brain. They're far, far safer driving. They reliably sustain their driving mobility. They're not losing their driver's license or have to have it taken away from them. And they're more confident and effective in driving. They're not shy about driving when it's dark or at night or under more difficult circumstances. They're confident. There's improvement in everyday performance abilities. If you just ask them how long it takes to find something in their medicine cabinet, it takes them half as long. That's, it's important to know 
that in your timed operations of daily living, you can be twice as fast by spending such a little investment in training your brain. It protects you against senior depression. There's a highly significant reduction in the probability that you'll develop a depression at an older age. And if you do, the depression will occur in milder form. You better sustain your independence. You better sustain your health. Your health costs are lower. Your quality of life indices are higher. There's less everyday functional difficulty expressed all across those 10 years. You're more in charge of yourself. And finally, there's a 29 to 48% reduction in dementia index in incidence. If you've taken the full dose, that is to say, if you've had the two additional brief booster shots, it's 48%. If you're in the general population, it's, 28, it's 29%. Now, that's a pretty good outcome. If this was a drug, I'd be a billionaire. <laughs> how, much, how much attention have you seen that uh, the press has uh, given to this outcome? How important do you think this is from the point of view of whether you should know about it or do know about it? Do you know about it? Okay. So why is this so given little? It's not like a big investment of time or trouble. It's not like this is a costly procedure. This doesn't cost $56,000 just to get the initial treatment. This costs practically nothing. It could be free. Medicare could easily afford this for everybody. And what changes then when the brain struggles in its old age? Well, everything. And what can be reversed by training? Well, pretty as far as we can say, everything. And how difficult is it to reverse the course of change? It's, it's easy. And, and can such training in humans delay or block the progression of dementia? Well, it appears in this initial study to be so, that it can, at least in many individuals. Now remember, no attempt was made in this study to manage brain health. No attempt was made before people's roughly 74th birthday. Do you think if we actually manage brain health, we could keep more people safe? Of course we could. Probably most of them. And finally, couldn't far more be done to sustain organic brain health and to increase human longevity? And the answer is, of course it could be. What if this was part of the Beyond the Human Joint Program? We had all of this other information. We can just not brain function and the physical and functional brain using our strategies, but also correcting chemistry and also addressing the special uh, issues that raise from variability in genetics that are in play, complexly in play and different, and more profoundly differentiating or individuating training to meet the needs of every individual that's out there that's beginning to struggle in life. Of course we could do better. Of course we could do more. I believe that most dementia are preventable, certainly delayable, substantially delayable in most human individuals by addressing it with appropriate tools in a timely way. Now, I, I have a second example here. Robbie is indicating to me my, my uh, time is up. But I just want a few things, say a few things about it. 
And that is to say, we have an equally uh, exciting effort underway in which the goal is to rescue children that just happen to have the misfortune of having a lousy early childhood and whose brains have got off to a poor start in life. And never mind exactly what, we'd, what, we, what we're up to, but just to say that because of uh, life, of fear, high stress, difficulty, abuse, other things that can happen in childhood, and also there are all kinds of distortions in, in behavior that can arise out of things like uh, media addiction and other things in a modern kid's life that basically can carry a kid off the beam. A struggling child commonly internalizes stress when they're not very good at school because their brain is not in very good health, not in very good shape. This is induced by ongoing negative self-evaluation. So we basically devised programs to do something about this, and we've very, been very successfully applying them in schools in uh, the United States, in Great Britain, and in Australia. Most leading study, studies have been done in Australia. And we, uh, part one is to find those kids. Part two is to assay their risk for progression to it's mental illness, suicide, addictions, academic failure, non-participation, oppositional behaviors, social misbehaviors, employment uh, failure, all kinds of things like this. And then we're educating them about their brain. We're trying to change their mindset so they understand it's their brain that they're holding them back. It's not them. It's, uh, it's in a sense where their brain has been in life, but it's all, all remedial. The brain is plastic. It's all an upside for them from this point forward to the end of life for them. And then we engage them in social and emotional brain training. That's crucial. We need to basically quiet the, quiet the, uh, the, the, uh, quiet down the devils. We need to decrease hyperreactivity. We need to strengthen their capacity for social attachment, for empathy. Commonly, they're losing it. And if we don't do something rapidly, by the time they're a young teen, they will lose it. We need to send them to the brain gym to bring their physical and functional brain back up to speed. And we need to continuously monitor their neurological process. We apply training uh, subsequent to subsequent or strengthen their outcomes in subsequent school years. And what we see is wonderful outcomes. Now, just to say that in a large trial that's been conducted in an Australian setting, where about 400 children were trained over a period of equivalent of one class in one uh, six-week period, a total hour, hour spent in the brain gym, total time spent at the brain gym of 18 hours in a classroom setting, okay, and about an equivalent amount of social-emotional training. And the consequence of this for these children, individuals between 14 and 20 years of age, so they're really youth, was that about... 75% of them were either had a diagnosable mental illness or were in a clear progression towards mental illness and to problems that would probably lead to addiction, mis criminal misbehavior, other things of this ilk. After training, more than 70% of those children identified as completely normal. Most children with this kind of history can be brought, can be rescued, can be brought back into the human mainstream. And it's a tragedy that we're not more aggressively trying to achieve this. So this is the second thing we're trying to achieve. And excitingly, officials in the Australian government, because this, several of these studies have been supported from the Australian uh, scientific apparatus, have now expressed a strong interest in a national school-based program that would apply this strategy in a short order to all children in this age range across the nation of Australia. 
And if that happens, I guarantee it will revolutionize how we think about treatment and mental illness and about the prevention of mental illness and employment. And what I'm trying to extend in this, the equivalent of the beyond the genome, genome approach to apply to child as well as adult populations as rapidly as possible. Because we can change child and adult outcomes on a massive scale in this world of ours, where so many people living in our midst are having such struggles. Thank you very much. So I've been expertly informed that we have time for one or two questions. Whoa. So what I'd like to do is walk to you with this microphone. If somebody would like to step up to the plate. Thank you. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of things like pickleball and things like that, that we can do to, you know, enhance our, our brains. And I'm, I'd like more ideas about what we can do. Right. Right. Well, I've written a book about this and uh, or a book about this in which I, in the end, I talk about what I do. And uh, that's a little bit ego, egocentric, but... Uh, one thing is, you know, my 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 uh, my wife calls me a man of a, of a thousand hobbies, and that's another way of saying this is that I'm into a game with myself in which I'm into continuous new learning, and I mean learning of new skills and abilities, where I have to use my brain actively to to problem solve and to deal and to control my actions, and to control my physical self, and and certainly any exercise, any form or any any form of game or activity in which there is a progression from the sluggish and the limited to the more and more refined, more and more controlled, more and more accurately controlled, more and more speeded. And I, I, I mentioned ping pong and pickleball simply because they have that. They, they embody that. You go from relatively slow and clumsy reactions in translating what you see into action to faster and faster and faster actions in controlling your movements in a complex and substantially unpredictable way of controlling your body. And that's all good for you. It's anti-Parkinson's disease. It's anti-dementia. It's all good. But there are a host of things like this that you can do. What's really important is that when you engage in new learning, you don't stress over it. You just look at it with a positive, I'm going to get better at this attitude, right? And if you, go, and you try, you reward yourself each time you define any little improvement, you're engaging the machinery of your brain to get stronger and stronger and stronger, to re-refine itself. It could be taking up a new musical instrument or hobby. It could be anything that has a, this progressive quality that carries you from the clumsy to the facile. We have one more question, and then we need to close up shop. Yes, the uh, talk so far is... Uh centered on the brain is a reasoning device and a responsive device and whatnot, but it's also a mem memory storage device. And I can see training to help you retain new memories. But in old people, one of the things you notice is that they have a lot of false memories. And actually, that's uh, in some ways a delightful thing. Right. <laughs> and uh, so is, is there a way to reverse, I guess, having false Memories and getting back true memories. Right, that's a really good question. Uh, I wrote I wrote my memoir for the sake of my family. I mean, you can't buy it. It was just for the sake of grandchildren and, and nieces and nephews. Uh, family history, and in this family history, I told many stories about my childhood. 
and I sent send it to my uh, my siblings. I have five siblings, and especially my sisters. I have three sisters. They're very bossy and very dominating. And they all tell me, "Oh, you got this all wrong. This story is not the same. This is the way I you know they." I said, write your own damn book, right? So this is the problem we have, right? Well, what you do want to do is you want to keep your brain shipping around information with the highest possible accuracy because retrieval requires that you can get to all of that recorded information. It requires that you have ways in your memories and in your life to really refresh it. And uh, so what commonly happens is, is that those levels in which you're actually restoring information for the long term are becoming disconnected and they're weakening and then the way they're being engaged is by 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 uh, by in information flows that are less coordinated. So basically, it's slowly fading away, as does your long-term memory. And in that fading, and in the noisiness involved, and there's a lot of accuracy. There's a lot of hijacking that occurs. Just like uh, and you, you can one way to assess this is to determine well how distractible I am now that I'm older. Can I really keep on the beam? Do I struggle to pay attention in a game or exercise? This is another relatively easy thing to measure. And uh, if you are on the beam, can sustain your attention, or really on the ball, really lively, that's another way of saying you're highly likely to be able to retain relatively, as reliable as anybody, full of error, your long-term memories, which are precious to us. Now, one last thing. We know from the 8th, 19th century, middle, mid-19th century, from studies initially by German scientists, one of the great classic science of all history, that if you just retell the same story over and over again, uh, a year later, it's a little different. Five years later, it's quite different. Uh, Ten years later, it's substantially different. And 20 years later, it can be totally different. And especially if you're the hero, you become a bigger and bigger hero. And pretty soon, you're the center of all action, and, and glory be to God. And uh, so that's almost inescapable. Don't tell those old stories too many times over because that's happening in your brain. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Sorry, I took some time. No, it's perfect. So uh, thank you for thanking uh, Dr. Michael Merzenich for his, his talk today. This is a fabulous book, by the way, Softwired. I encourage you to read it. And uh, the Brain HQ product is so good that I actually remembered to buy bread for my wife today. Otherwise, I <laughs> would have been punched. So my memory is actually kind of going in the right direction. Uh, I want to thank all of you, our audience, for being here, and also those of you who are watching uh, online. Um, the message I will give to you is the Commonwealth Club is back. So please check our, yes, there we are. Please, please check our schedule. We have an enormous number of fascinating programs across the full spectrum of society. This is a production of the Health and Medicine Member-Led Forum. And if any of you are interested in becoming involved with our Member-Led Forum, uh, get in touch. You can get in touch with me through, through the website, Robert Kilpatrick. Okay? So thank you so much, and I hope you have a safe journey home. That's all for today. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. 
think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.